0: This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtCloud. ArtCloud's trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide. ArtCloud's all-in-one art management solution, an integrated art marketplace, is the fastest growing of its kind. You can use ArtCloud's Marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste, share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts and even use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. If you're an artist or gallery, plug into ArtCloud's best-in-class art management platform, including easy-to-use client inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by placing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. So, are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration's free, so sign up now on artcloud.com, that's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're joined by Georgina Adam, Financial Times contributor and art market editor-at-large of The Art Newspaper. Today, we're here to talk with Georgina about her brand new book, Dark Side of the Boom, The Excesses of the Art Market in the 21st Century. The book's available for sale now on Amazon. You can get it also on Lud Humphrey's website. It's available on the Kindle and in many other places. Georgina, it's great having you back on. How have you been?
1: Very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me.
0: Your book's called Dark Side of the Boom, and parts of the book cover different shady aspects of the art market, like fakes, tax avoidance, money laundering, etc. How common are these issues in the art market? Do they only really impact a very small percentage of the art market, or are some more prolific than we may think?
1: Well, I would say firstly that the book covers also what I call the excesses, so not only shady things, but things that have come in the wake of these huge prices and this huge transformation. So to a large extent, it does follow on from big bucks, which was about all the changes in the art market. Um, One of the things that I think surprised me um, was to discover that, for example, faking is much more common than we realize. But a lot of the faking problems don't, um, don't hit the headlines because they're less expensive works of art. We hear about, obviously, Nodler Gallery. But I was interested when I went to see the FBI to hear that there are fakers who are selling things online often, um, cheating smaller buyers. It's not tiny because it's nevertheless perhaps five or $10,000, but they're doing it all over the country. You know, fake Dali prints, things like that. That was quite a surprise. So it's actually, that is more widespread than I had realized. As far as money laundering is concerned, it's very difficult because there are really very few cases that are public, but I did understand from the FBI again that it is a growing problem.
0: You open the book by writing about your visit to Le Freeport, a secretive high security storage unit in Luxembourg. Now this is a fascinating aspect of the art market that not many people know about or even see. Tell us about what it's like to visit La Freeport. What's it like inside there? What kind of art is there? And explain the context regarding how and why art ends up there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is something which has been a really growing phenomenon. Freeports used to be, they used to be tax-free zones where merchandise would be stored um, while it was in transit. And... uh, people didn't pay tax on it because it was going to go on somewhere else perhaps be converted it might be something like components for a car or something like that but with the boom in high value works of art particularly gold jewelry and particularly art uh they've developed enormously so i've actually visited three i've visited two freeports one both of them belonging to bouvier Yves bouvier who was the freeport king one in um shang um sorry in singapore and then i went to the opening of the luxembourg one and then subsequently when i was researching for this book i also went to see what was not a freeport but which was a big art storage warehouse in chelsea in new york in fact what's interesting is that you actually don't see very much what you see is massive security round the outside um you have to go through a sort of metal turn gate to get in Um, The walls, particularly the ones that are custom built, they're pretty well bomb-proof. You know, they really are designed to store these high-value things. Everything is stored in um, vaults, which are behind 50-centimeter steel doors. They've got special systems. Um, If there's a fire, uh, they don't pour water, because obviously art, that would be very vulnerable. They suck out the oxygen, and then they push an inert gas in, so that puts out the fire. So they're very highly protected, Um, but you don't actually see anything. I was not allowed into either of the vaults, either in um, Singapore or in um, Luxembourg, Uh, but I did manage to sneak into one of the vaults in um, in the warehouse in Chelsea, and actually what you see is an enormous amount of art in crates. Everything's crated. You don't actually see any art. And it's kind of sad to see all this art sitting in crates um, on floor after floor after floor of this. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of these free ports or art storage units dotted around the world now. Um The reason that they have exploded so much is partly because, obviously, there's a lot more art around. It's being produced um, by artists, obviously, and museums have got a lot of art, a lot of museums store. There's also this growing um, interest in art as an investment. So if you buy art as an investment, you're not really interested in hanging it on your walls. You want to keep it nice and safe and cozy. Uh, So you stick it into a freeport. Another big advantage is that you don't have to pay tax of any sort while it's in the freeport. These are it's exactly what they are: tax-free zones. Now, should you take it out and sell it, you'd have to pay tax. But you could buy and sell it, keeping it in the freeport, in which case it will not become liable for tax. And this has been another attraction of these uh, of these facilities.
0: Another one of the topics you address in your book is speculation. Perhaps the greatest example of it during the last boom was the zombie formalist bubble, a group of really young artists painting in an abstract style that hit the auction block very, very early in their careers. Now that that bubble has burst, the art world's moved on, but I'm curious where all the pieces fell. So what happened to the majority of the artists, collectors, and galleries who participated so heavily in this movement?
1: Well, it was a complete speculative bubble. And it's difficult to know what's happened. I mean, it was quite interesting because a young dealer said to me, well, you know, it's not so bad because people bought this art very cheaply. Um, It went up hugely in price. Some people, a few people managed to make some money out of it. But when it fell back, it probably only fell back to the price they originally paid for it. So they didn't make money, but it's conceivable that they didn't lose money either. And, of course, they've still got the art. Now, I do say in the book that I'm not convinced that they... um, they appreciate it as art because one of the aspects of zombie formalism was its very neutrality. You know, it tended to be flat, squarish or oblong, could hang on the wall. And there was really nothing. It was quite featureless in a way. Um, so whether you really want to have a lineup of these things on your walls, I don't know. Um, but people have moved on. Some artists have indeed uh, started making other art. Um it's just, it was just, some people burnt their finger, had their fingers burned.
0: You have a chapter in your book dedicated to the surging demand for art from Chinese collectors. What insights can you share with us based on your research as to the different types of art they're currently buying? Are they interested in collecting all kinds of U.S. and European artists? Or is it only certain artists and certain price points at this time? And how much of an impact are they making, really?
1: It's very difficult to generalize about the Chinese market because China is enormous, you know, with the colossal population. And uh, I think that whatever you say, you can probably say the contrary as well. For example, it's generally often thought that Chinese collectors don't like abstract art. But in fact, um, people like Zhao KI and Chu Tichung, uh, particularly in Taiwan, but also a bit in mainland China, are quite popular as well. But on the whole, on the whole, I think they do like figurative art. I think Chinese collectors are very motivated by brand name art, so you will find that certain artists, who they rec- whose names they recognise, they will buy. And we have seen recently things by, for example, Van Gogh, uh, obviously Picasso, um, have. Uh, have been bought. And then, of course, there's the famous case of the Modigliani that was bought by Liao Yiqiang, you know, the owner of the Long Museums in Shanghai and elsewhere. I think that there has definitely been a shift. Chinese collectors tended to focus on Chinese artists. There is definitely much more of a movement towards uh, Western artists, international artists. Uh, But as I say, I think that they they do still go for brand names. They feel reassured by that. And of course, Damien Hurst is also a brand name there. Um, and the dealers are taking over works for you know by Damien Hirst, Um something that they feel that the collectors will recognize, perhaps from their research on the internet. It has to be said as well that Chinese collectors are very interested in the investment side as well, and that there is a certain amount of, I would have said, sort of shadow banking in a way that's going on, Um, although I can't prove it. But this is what I've heard.
0: In your book, you cover a lot of different legal disputes that have arisen over the past few years in the art market. What was the most fascinating for you to research, and why?
1: I think I'm most riveted by the colossal dispute that's going on between two people at the moment. One is Yves Bouvier, who is a Swiss businessman who uh, established a number of these free ports. And it turned out that he was also acting as an agent or a dealer, and that's one of the key aspects of the dispute, for a Russian oligarch called Dmitry Rybolovlev. Rybolovlev spent a tidy $2 billion buying art through Bouvier art that was not on the public market. It was not sold at auction. Bouvier used to wrinkle these things out from private collections. Amongst them was the Leonardo da Vinci, Salvatore Mundi. And uh, when the whole uh, relationship broke down in recriminations, Ribolovlev accused Bouvier of price gouging him. He said he spent $2 billion with him and that the artworks of art that he had bought were only worth one billion dollars so it's an extraordinary story each side obviously has their point of view Uh, they are fighting each other in legal jurisdictions in at least three countries if not four and it'll take a number of years for this to be resolved
0: and so after exploring the dark side of the art market in detail in your book what kind of conclusions have you come to about if the art market should be more regulated and an if so how?
1: Well, regulation of the art market that comes back all the time, particularly when prices are very high, and particularly when these high profile cases like Bouvier and Ribolovlev come out. Personally I think it should be more regulated. I think actually one of the aspects that could be better regulated would actually also concern museums. You know, trustees in museums who will push to have certain artists bought that it enhances the value of their own collection. So I think that there's some insider knowledge there that somehow should be improved. I think that knowing who the identities of the vendor and the buyer in certain cases would be a great improvement and not just through a shell company. Um, at the moment, quite often cases of... Fakes, for example, you can follow them, and then at one point they are bought or resold, either by a company or by an auction house. And the auction house says, Oh, client confidentiality, I can't tell you. And I think if perhaps there would be some way that the identity of the vendor, in the case of a sale of a work of art, should be known to somehow, should be perhaps put into into some equivalent of some sort of escrow. So if there is a dispute, you can get back to finding out who the actual vendor is. But I do think that there are two aspects to this. One is that the authorities have very little interest in regulating the art market because they have more important issues to worry about. And there is a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that why should they bother saving rich people from each other? And um, the other thing is that I don't think the trade itself has got any desire really to to regulate the market. I think they feel it would be interfering with their business. And there was an attempt by the uh, the Swiss, it was called the Basel Institute of Governance, and they did try to lay down some guidelines. And um, ultimately, they brought together dealers, auction houses, and ultimately it came to nothing because I think that this is going to be, I think that the trade will be quite resistant to to regulating the art market more.
0: Georgina, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and discussing your brand new book, Dark Side of the Boom, The Excesses of the Art Market in the 21st Century. The book's available for sale now on Amazon. I highly recommend all of our listeners check it out. Thanks so much again for coming on.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks to ArtCloud for sponsoring this week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast. Trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide, ArtCloud's all-in-one art management solution, an integrated art marketplace, is the fastest growing of its kind. Use ArtCloud's marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste, share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts, and use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. If you're an artist or gallery... Plug into ArtCloud's best in class art management platform, including easy to use client inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by listing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. Are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration's free, so sign up now on ArtCloud.com. That's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com and request a demo today.